Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio inside Max 6 Conscious Workspace and the home of Conscious Capitalism Arizona. I'm your host, Karen Owicki, and I'd like to welcome you to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Through the art of the connected conversation, AZ TechCast guests will share their expertise, success stories, news, and analysis about the region's leading startups, companies, and emerging technologies, as well as the critical issues and latest industry and economic trends propelling the state's growing technology ecosystem. Broadcasting monthly, the goal of AZ TechCast is to have real leaders having real conversations about what's happening in the technology sector across the state of Arizona. And I'd like to thank Arizona Commerce Authority, AZ TechCast underwriter for this segment in June 2020. We're very pleased and honored to have you supporting these conversations. The Arizona Commerce Authority is the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. The Commerce Authority uses a three-pronged approach to advance the overall economy, recruit, grow, and create. Recruiting out-of-state companies to expand their operations in Arizona, working with existing companies to grow their business in Arizona and beyond, and of course, partnering with entrepreneurs and companies to create new jobs and businesses in targeted industries. And now I am very pleased to introduce you to our distinguished panel today, Dr. Rita Chang, President of Northern Arizona University, Dr. Robert Robbins, President of the University of Arizona, Dr. Michael Crow, President of Arizona State University, and my partner in crime here, Steve Zylstra, co-host and President and CEO of the Arizona Technology Council. We're very pleased to have each of you here. Thanks for taking your time with us today. Today's University Roundtable conversation will cover the state of higher education in Arizona. Arizona proudly boasts of having some of the best universities and educational institutions in the country and in the world. Arizona is home to three world-class universities, my undergrad alma mater, Northern Arizona University, Arizona State University, and the University of Arizona. Our featured guest today will discuss the relationship between the tech community and the university system. With exciting innovation we can expect to see coming out of each university, as well as what challenges and opportunities are on the horizon. So thank you again for joining me today on Arizona Technology Council's podcast series, AZ TechCast. Let's get into the conversation. I said we have about an hour and a lot of ground to cover with each of you up to so many wonderful things. So I always like to kind of start with a a little icebreaker uh, to kind of ease some of the, the maybe nervousness about being on, although you all speak publicly in your profession. I'd love to hear from each of you. Maybe, Steve, you wouldn't mind starting for us. Uh, the silver lining for you in this this time of quarantine. You know, we're all making pivots and shifts and, and changes, uh, either personally or professionally. Share with us the silver lining that you're experiencing in this time of, of stepping back a bit. Steve, do you mind going first? No. In fact, I think the tech industry is probably faring this pandemic better than virtually any other industry. First of all, the manufacturers were not sequestered like many types of companies across the state, different sectors. Uh, And uh, the IT-related companies, I guess every company is an IT-related company these days, but were quickly able to pivot and work from home. So we actually, in April, the tech sector in Arizona grew about 3.8%, believe it or not. So that's the silver lining for me. Our industry is growing and was booming before COVID-19. And uh, I think it will help our economy out of the, the doldrums once we get COVID behind us. Excellent. Who'd like to take a, an opportunity to share next? I sure can. Thank um, you, Rita. Um, from a personal perspective, I think it's reconnecting with uh, family and friends and the fact that we have the technology that allows us to do that. I have two young adult uh, children with very small grandchildren in each family, and it's wonderful to watch their ability to work from home and uh, become really stronger parents as a result of the time that they're able to spend. So 
while I can't be with them, uh, I can reconnect in so many ways that I, I couldn't. Also, five and six-year-olds are, are tech-savvy now, so they're going to be wonderful employees of the future because they know how to screen share and document connect in significant ways. So. Bless our kindergarten teachers, right, for all of that, <laughs> the jokes that I heard many of them share in the beginning days of class and session, but what a great way to look at that. Thank you, Rita. Michael, I saw you were ready as well. Well, I'll probably be the contrary and maybe. So to me, the silver lining here is that this is a big moment for the reduction in the ignorance index of our population. Our population now uh, hopefully will be less ignorant about the importance of science and the basing of decisions on scientific understanding rather than on the fantasy that viruses don't actually move around uh, between people uh, rather than on just the complete total fantasies that people live under. Uh, Second, I think, uh, is a reduction of ignorance about complexity. This is a complex world, complex planet, a complex place, and you have to be ready to deal with what that complexity brings you. And so that then, that does create opportunities for new technologies. It creates opportunities for new economic activity. And I think the third area of reduction in ignorance that is the silver lining here is that uh, those of us that are privileged uh, now have an even starker understanding and are hopefully less ignorant about social inequities. Uh, and, 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 and that even within the technology space, you know, we're sitting here talking to each other off high speed, internet driven, real time, live television grade communication platforms. Not everybody has access to this. If you don't have access to these kinds of things, if you don't have access to healthcare, if you don't have access to, to, uh, technology that can be deployed, it creates not just a social inequity, that social inequity then comes back and bites the rest of us. And so the silver lining for me is uh, one that you might not have expected, the reduction in the ignorance index. I love it. Well said. How about you, Robert? Yeah, I I just amplify a little bit on what both Rita and Michael said. You know, growing up in in an era when, you know, you couldn't go to the swimming pool in the summer because of polio. One of my friends was the last reported known case in the state of Mississippi of polio. And there was no webinars. There was no social media to get the message out about what the heck is polio. You can't see it. You could certainly see people in iron lungs and understanding about iron lungs. But I, I, I agree with Michael. Uh, it's, a, it's a golden opportunity for us to, although you said silver lining, are you golden? A platinum opportunity for us to, to be able to message that, you know, how many people now can actually converse in the, in the uh, letters of RT-PCR. I mean, most people wouldn't have known what that means, and many people still don't know, but there, there are so many opportunities to educate people. The problem is, you know, that the message is out there. We've got to stay on the message. Yes. And, and basic, fundamental, and we're dealing with it, and we'll probably get into this now, the basic fundamentals that helped us during other pandemics still apply today. You know, wash your hands, cover your face, stay away from people. If we did that, 90% of this transmission could be mitigated. On a personal note, I, I agree with Rita, the chance to connect with people and, and to be able to Zoom with them. And I've really enjoyed uh, not having to go to three dinners a night and jump on airplanes and run around. The day, the hours are still spent in these kind of uh, exchanges, but it has given me time to reflect and and think about, it gets to be a little daunting when um, you realize you're in a high-risk group simply because of your age and potentially your comorbidities. So I've kind of taken it to task to kind of focus in on my own personal health and lost a little bit of weight and trying to eat better and trying to exercise a little bit, but it's lonely. I mean, people are isolated. Uh, there's clearly an increase in, in mental health issues because people aren't, we're social by nature and we want to be back together. And we got into this world of higher education because we drive energy from our students and being on campus and being together. And we've lost that. So my, my hope is it will come, come together and to be able, using technology, I mean, we'll, 
we'll get into some of the technology that is being deployed to help us through this crisis. But we're going to, this is not a flash in the pan occurrence. We're going to be in this mode for at least another year, maybe two years. And so the three of us, we've got some big decisions we're going to have to make of how to navigate and keep our institutions not only just surviving, but thriving uh, during these challenges. Aaron, can I jump in here? Um, You faced some uh, issues that you never had to face before uh, when COVID came down the pike. You had to uh, graduate students uh, remotely. You had to deal with this pandemic and allow people to continue to be educated, in many cases, graduate with their degrees. Can you talk to us a little bit about what each of the institutions had to do to sort of, this is an overused word now, but pivot, continue to do what you do, but do it in a whole new way? I mean, yeah, well, very quickly, of course, we had to mobilize within five days of going uh, completely remotely. It required a lot of uh, resilience and cooperation and collaboration amongst faculty, students, our staff, IT staff in particular, uh, facility staff, just all the things that were required to uh, pivot, it's the exact right word, uh, to, to helping our students get the credits and finish out the classes they had in the spring term. Uh, in parallel, we had to start planning about what does the fall look like. I think most all of us thought we would just continue on, which we've done through the summer, this remote platform for teaching and learning, but that was difficult, but everyone did it and every uh, institution across the country and around the world did it. The other thing was the the sort of bittersweetness of commencement. You know, I kind of taken for granted the incredible celebratory uh, atmosphere around commencement and we, we all did the best we could. Uh, I can remember getting all of my gear on and standing in the middle of Arizona Stadium completely empty uh, and and trying to oversee commencement, which was in a virtual way. And that was surrealistic, to say the least. Uh, Everybody made the best they could out of it. But now we're faced with what do we do in the fall? We'll get into that later. You know, COVID-19 has transformed much of, uh, of how we do things. But it's taught us how we can harness the the creativity and the intellect and uh, the capabilities of our faculty and staff and the depth of our technology and and how it allowed us to quickly adjust to, excuse me, is quickly adjust to the various things that had to happen so that our students' education would be uninterrupted. I think that same creativity and spirit has taught us that we could accomplish great things when we work together. And as we transition to fall, I think it's the knowledge that we might live with this pandemic for quite some time and, um, and possibly experience new threats. So we've got to keep, keep using that creativity and that will uh, to succeed, uh, to continue to provide classroom instruction uh, assisted by the most advanced technology Uh, so that uh, we can have a hybrid of uh, students in person and students who may need to be accessing from a distance. Yeah, for us, uh, similarly, the, you know, we designed, deployed, tested at at huge scale. Hundreds of millions of Zoom minutes were consumed between March 15th and May 10th. Hundreds of millions of minutes just by ASU users across 11,000 courses. Uh, We ended up with now the creation of a third teaching and learning modality. So we have ASU full immersion on-campus technology-enhanced learning, ASU synchronous full immersion technology-enhanced learning, and ASU digital immersion online technology-enhanced learning. And so what we're doing now, excuse me, we're operating this summer in the mode of synchronous and online uh, for our summer school with 60,000 students enrolled in our summer school. And what we're doing in getting ready for the fall is basically we'll be ready for anything. We can operate in all three modalities. We can move and match between the modalities. We can operate in any scale in any modality. And so uh, the key will be where we are from a health perspective But uh, at that time. But uh, right now what we have, I mean, Steve, to your question, is that you know, we use the moment to create a new modality, test it at scale, 
train our faculty, uh, build the partnerships and the linkages and the new technology uh, companies and so forth. And so uh, we were able to pull all that off. So it was a positive step for the university. Michael, you had mentioned when we were in the green room, kind of waiting to all come together, that you're you're there, you've been there every day at the office. And I'm, I know that Rita said that she's there quite frequently as well. How, what's the plan then for your universities to keep students stay safe when, you know, when everyone back, and I'm saying everyone, I don't even know what that means, but what, where are we with safety as it relates to a fall session? So basically our concept, which is probably similar to the other schools, is, is management of the virus depending on where it is at that particular moment. And so management for us means creating a healthy and safe working and teaching and learning environment. So for us, that means the three common sense things that people aren't doing enough of, wearing your mask, staying socially distant, and hyper-cleaning your hands uh, in particular. If you do those three things, you have some chance of knocking this thing down just from those three things alone. And then on top of that, that means then uh, in a reassembly mode on campus, no large classes, only small classes, only socially distant classes, people that are socially isolated because they've been in contact with someone that's positive, they have to zoom into the class. Someone that is testing positive, they've got to zoom into the class until they're no longer testing positive. So uh, same with our faculty members. Faculty members that are in high-risk groups will have to zoom in. They can't come on campus. Or staff members that are in high-risk groups, they can't come on campus. They've got to zoom in. And so the key is create basically saying we have the virus, we're going to move forward, and then just managing around it. And so we're looking at uh, testing everyone that is uh, symptomatic, testing everyone that we're required to test like athletes, and then making testing available to every other person that wants it. Uh, And just doing that on an as-demand, on an on-demand kind of basis. Under most circumstances, that will work fine. If we find ourselves in a massive out-of-the-box expansion of this pandemic, that won't work fine. And so uh, right now, we don't know where we're going to end up. We're going to spend a few weeks here seeing whether or not intensive implementation of the three basic things you can do can beat down the rise of the of the spread of the virus but in any event uh, we're we're ready to reassemble we're ready to reassemble and zoom we're ready to zoom only we're ready to zoom for a while then reassemble <laughs> whatever comes we're going to be ready and it turns out we've been polling our students they want to be they want to come back no matter what they want to come back even if they're taking classes you know uh, remotely uh, they, they want to move on with their lives. They don't want to stay in their bedrooms at home. We have uh, all, all of the um, same uh, planning going on. Um, I think flexibility is really going to be important. Um, and, um, you know, having the uh, technology at all three of our campuses allows us to uh, envision all of those uh, scenarios that uh, Michael talked about. And our students do want to be here. NAU is, is a primarily undergraduate resident uh, campus, and um, so all of our planning has, has focused on that residential campus experience for our students. So options in residence halls to offer physical spacing, looking at enforcing uh, physical distancing and shared spaces across the campus, using our NAU flex in the classroom so that we can socially distance or physically distance and, and zoom in. Um, we've got technology that's going to monitor how many people are in shared spaces so that students know whether or not it's safe to be there. A mass on campus of uh, uh, screening and well-being, lots of training for our students on what it means to be a good campus citizen, signing a pledge that they will take care of themselves and their fellow students. So there's a lot of things that are going on at all three campuses that are encouraging uh, students to stay healthy and do those three basic things, as well as the, uh, the overall monitoring and testing and tracing uh, that, that we have. We're putting aside a residence hall so that if students do feel that they, well, if students do feel sick or have tested positive, that they can be isolated in a, in a, in a fashion that makes other people well. And then the final thing is our, is our, our at-risk. We will have virtual activities going on all through next year, virtual meetings, uh, um, faculty and staff who are at risk uh, working from their homes, 
Uh, we will have remote access uh, to the campus in all of our activities. Uh, the students also have a lot of need for connecting in their clubs and organizations, uh, and we will have the same flexibility for Zooming and being there in person and virtually for those out-of-classroom experiences as well. Robert, anything to add to that? No, I, I think we're doing many of the same things. I would say, though, importantly, there are some, some things as we try to provide flexibility for everyone. The students are going to decide. They're going to decide do they want to come back to campus or not. They're going to decide if they want to take their classes remotely or show up face-to-face. Some of the faculty don't want to do that, and we've got flexibility to allow them to teach their classes remotely. There are some jobs that you simply cannot do remotely. So, of course, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I always default to, I have not ever figured out how to do a heart transplant remotely. So if you're a heart transplant surgeon, you're going to have to go to work and continue doing your work every day. A lot of people don't know that you are. Yeah, right. (laughs) Used to be, used to be recovering. But there are thousands of individuals who get up every day and go into our clinics and our hospitals and provide uh, services. They, They don't have a choice. They can't do that remotely. Now, maybe they decide to do something else for a while, or take a leave from the university or, or whatever. I, I also struggle with how do you do organic chemistry lab remotely? You know, it's a long time ago, but I remember being given uh, uh, an aliquot of something and it was my unknown. Come back and tell me what this is. Well, you know, you could think about how you could do that at home in the kitchen uh, you know, but you don't have all the chemicals, you don't have the safety, you don't have the, uh, the oversight. So uh, I, I think all of us are going to have to offer some degree of in-campus, in-person experiences. The athletes, you can't play the games. I guess, you know, there, there's been a lot of video game playing during the off season, and they've been quite entertaining. You know, when ESPN is uh, uh, televising athletes playing each other on video games, we're in a deep set of circumstances. I I think all of us are going to struggle with how do we bring those, quote, performers back, the individual that needs to be in the art studio to spin a pot, uh, you know, do pottery and spin a beautiful bowl. Again, going back to organic chemistry or or delivering uh, care in hospitals. We all have nursing programs. They need to have clinical experience. So because we're going to be at this a long time, we're all uh, having to figure out how do we do that, as uh, Michael and Rita both said, as safe as we possibly can to provide the maximum protection and guidelines to, to keep our students, faculty, and staff as safe as we possibly can. We can never de-risk this to zero. So there, there are going to be cases the question is, can we keep the number of cases at as, as minimized as we can so that we don't overwhelm uh, our hospitals? Because that's going to be the rate limiting step. You know, we're very close to being, to looking like hospitals in Manhattan, where they were intubating people in the hallway and, and handbagging them because there was no ventilator. I mean, we're very, very close to that in Arizona. And if we brought back a lot of students and people got sick or they infected people in the community and our hospitals were overrun, that's the point where we can't go. And and we're teetering on that. And that's why we're all watching these numbers very, very closely every day. President Robbins, a quick follow-up. I participate in a weekly call with the governor uh, who talks to the business community about what's going on uh, there. He has uh, mentioned the program that you started at the U of A in testing for COVID-19. And uh, as I understand it, you planned or maybe have already completed testing all the faculty and all the students. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that program? Yeah, that was a a program that uh, looked at antibodies. So three different tests. One, there's an antibody test that 
looks to see if one has had the infection. And if you have, you produce antibodies. Then there's the, uh, the molecular test to find out today, right now, if we took a swab from you or had you provide a saliva sample in a tube, we test to see if you have active virus. And then there's a more nuanced test that is a little simpler than that RT-PCR test that I just described with the the molecular uh, signal, which is an antigen test. It's a simple point-of-care test that you have an antibody specifically for COVID-19. The problem with that test is it's a good screening test, but it's not a very good diagnostic test. So we have agreed to provide our antibody test to the other institutions and to all healthcare providers on the front lines and the first responders in the state. President Crow and uh, coming out of their uh, biodesign program and all the resources that uh, ASU has developed a very accurate and very scalable PCR testing, and he can describe it, but we're our people are talking to his people uh, almost on a daily basis. And I think that, you know, that kind of test could be provided uh, statewide and, and ASU has stepped in and, and taken that part uh, to serve the state. We're all state institution and it's, and it's uh, you know, part of our mission to serve the citizens of Arizona. So I'm proud of all the things that we're doing. I know Rita has a, has a, collaboration with TGN and antigen testing through them, Michael Scott, Mayo Clinic, we've got Banner. So it's all of us trying to marshal the resources to serve the state. But our primary focus is to take care of, you know, our family at the at the U of A. And, you know, with 45,000 students and 15,000 faculty and staff, I mean, that's trying to manage a population of 60,000 people who are going in and out of the surrounding community. So we have to keep all of those things uh, uh, foremost in our, our minds as we're looking at these strategies. Testing is going to be a component of all three of our university's strategies. Um, and uh, you know, obviously we can't test everybody every day. Uh, there's volume uh, uh, issues and cost issues, uh, but uh, testing will tell us uh, what is going on with our community on any given day. It will also uh, tell us what happened. And we have an antibody testing program that's also being run out of our Pathogen and Microbiome Institute uh, that's experimental, but it will give us a sense of what, what happened over the course of the semester or year in reflection. But the rapid tests and the, uh, the other uh, uh, saliva tests from ASU will be used here on the NAU campus so, so that we can determine whether we've got hot spots. We also have uh, faculty who are uh, monitoring wastewater, are doing uh, almost all of the contact tracing for Coconino County, the experts on campus that are, are partnering with the county. So we, we will have a lot of monitoring, testing, tracing, distancing strategies in play here as well. Go ahead, Michael. I, I think the only thing I would add is that people have got to, you, you there's one of two mindsets. Uh, one mindset is you hunker down and you wait till the storm blows over. This isn't a storm. This is a climate shift. It's different than a storm. This is a climate shift, not just this virus, but all the viruses that follow this virus, the way this virus may mutate. This is, this is just one of the things that's happening relative to living here on Earth. And so if it's climate, then that means it has to be managed. You have to adapt to it. You have to, you have to modify your behavior. And so people keep asking me, you know, are you going to close the university the first positive test you get? Our first positive test was in January, and we've had many, many positive tests since then. And if the disease uh, manifests itself by basically 1% of the population in any given point in time, which is a low number, for us, that would be 750 simultaneous positive tests in our student body and 150 simultaneous positives among our workers. Okay then if that's, the, if that's the way the virus works, as we work our way through it at that very low level, then that means we have to figure out how to do that, how to keep that number low, and then how to manage the manifestation of the virus through contact tracing, through isolation, and through strict, rigid enforcement of the three things, masking, social distancing, and hygiene. 
If we do all of that, we can probably manage and adapt to this climate shift. If we don't do that, then I don't know how many PPP issuances the government of the United States can put out. I don't know how many trillions of dollars of of uh, money can be printed up and handed out to the population that isn't able to get back to work because we haven't figured out how to manage this. We've got to manage it. And if that means shutting down all the bars, then shut them down. Uh, if that means taking places where social distancing isn't possible, you know, we're not going to have any classes where social distancing isn't possible, period. Done, finished. And so if people don't get that, you know, then we're going to suffer a lot before we learn the lesson necessary of what it's going to take to manage our way through this, through this climate change, this viral climate change. I'd like to move us beyond COVID. Um, COVID has um, impacted all aspects of our society and, and the world. A lot of people are talking about, you know, what's the new normal going to look like? And in many ways, this has accelerated digital transformation, right? We've been talking about digital transformation for a long time. And now it's become a reality. Simultaneously, we're experiencing racial issues and racial discrimination in this country. Really, for the first time in my lifetime, people are really paying attention. These two phenomena are happening at the same time. And uh, education was already on a path to transform itself. And this is in some ways accelerating that. I think people want to try and understand uh, what leaders like yourself envision as the future of higher education uh, in Arizona, the U.S., and around the world. Who wants to start with that one? Well, I'll just say that you know we've contributed to these uh, social inequities by having a higher education system, which has been only available for a few people. We made it so expensive that almost no one can afford to t- attend across the country. You know, and so we've we've done a poor job at making our educational processes publicly accessible. And we need to do a better job at that. And we need technology to help us to be able to do that. We need new ways of teaching and learning to help us to be able to do that. And I think in Arizona, we have three universities that are significantly more innovative than the norm, a board and a place and a state where we can be innovative, where we can do new things, where we can make things happen. And so we're making huge progress here between the three universities, I think, We're going to have to figure out a way where education is not something where a few people graduate from high school that actually are qualified. A quarter of the class doesn't graduate from high school. That's got to stop. Everyone has to graduate from high school. And people that can't graduate from high school can't create systems where everyone graduates from high school. They ought to move out of the way and let other people in that figure out how to do that. And then beyond that, beyond high school, every single person is going to have to have access over some point of their life to some kind of post-secondary educational opportunity, a course, a set of courses, a micro degree, a bachelor's degree, an associate's degree, a technical certificate. And maybe they took it when they were 18 and then they they did another one when they were 40. And so what we're going to have to do is change the notion of of what's called higher education, post-secondary education. We're going to have to change the notion of it being a scarce commodity and making it into something that's ubiquitously available. I think that's been one of the neat things that I've witnessed with the quarantine. Universities all across the country have been offering, you know, a variety of courses, uh, businesses as well, uh, just institutions just rising to the occasion saying, hey, we're not going to keep this close to the vest. Let's open this up and give people an opportunity to learn. And so back to what Rita had said earlier, this is an opportunity for us to continue to get creative and hopefully even that playing field. Very well said. I think the pandemic has uh, taught us uh, um, the different teaching and learning models available uh, to us and to our students and uh, with an emphasis on, on virtual technologies. Um, I think we're just at the, uh, the, the, uh, the formative stages of, uh, of ways that we can think in terms of enhanced access as, as Michael talked about. I think technology can be a playing, you know, a level playing field uh, for students who have responsibilities of caring for family members or holding jobs or supporting families. Uh, but it's only uh, accessible if we uh, can break down the, the, the barriers of uh, high speed Internet to rural uh, communities, to the disproportionate access to Wi-Fi in households. We have a laptop uh, loaner program because there were students that went home in the spring and didn't have uh, the computer equipment or the Wi-Fi 
access. We spent the summer putting hotspots in, in the, on the reservation and in other spots in northern Arizona because our students couldn't access. They had to drive somewhere to access uh, the technology to uh, continue their education. All of that just helps all of us make some reflective notions of how complicit and how uh, inattentive we may have been to the disproportionate access to education by our students. And, and if we can reflect on that and change, this is going to make us better in the future. I would just add, again, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I, I've always seen the parallel between the healthcare system and higher education as being not intuitively obvious, but in my mind, uh, there's a lot of parallels we could draw. Uh, and I think Michael and Rita both hit on really, really important issues uh, that I feel strongly about in both sectors. One, you need to have accessible, affordable education and healthcare. Two, it needs to be a lifelong endeavor. Just like you need to continue to uh, pay attention to your health, you need to continue to learn throughout your lifetime to remain intellectually curious and, and try to continue to educate yourself. And, and again, we, we hit on one of the silver linings around this is that people actually understand what a virus is. And, you know, we can get into a discussion about a vaccine, which we all, of course, hope is coming. But what does that mean? Because as uh, Michael pointed out in his silver lining, the incredible anti-science mentality uh, by certain segments of the country um, that, you know, I saw something somewhere that, you know, as high as 40% of people would refuse getting a vaccine, even if there was one that was proven to be safe and uh, was accessible. I, my hope is that, uh, of course, everybody would, uh, would want to get a vaccine. So I, I think the future landscape is going to be, and and certainly, uh, Michael has done an incredible job. When, when I first got here, I said, you know, why is it, because I, I came from Houston, and I, I've told Michael this over and over, I, I saw more billboards for ASU in Houston than I did for UT, A&M, Rice, University of Houston, all combined, and, and you know, spots on public radio and all the stuff. And I said, why is it that U of A only has 4,000 uh, online students and ASU has 40,000. Now I think up to 65,000. He was way out ahead of this. He saw the future long before COVID or anybody else. And this, we're, as Rita said, we're going to, we've learned a lot in just a few months about how we're going to need to to meet students where they are, even in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for the landscape and, and how we conduct higher education uh, to change. And a lot of it is going to be uh, delivering digital remote offerings for teaching and learning opportunities, no matter where the students are. And that'll get us to accessibility, but it also has to be affordable as well, just like with healthcare. Given that most of our listeners are entrepreneurs, business owners, and uh, really leaders across the state of Arizona, I'd love to just take this last 20 minutes or so to talk about higher education and programs that you all are working on to help create highly skilled workforce in order to sustain innovation in our economy. Who would like to, to stab that one first? Well, one thing we did, and I think this is having some impact, was we increased the size of our engineering school by a factor of four. So we, so we now have 25,000 engineering students, 18,000 on campus, and seven or 8,000 online. And so the reason for that is not because engineering is the be-all and the end-all of all things. It's just we needed more engineers. And, so, and we need more engineers from every family background, every ethnic background, every, every more women engineers, everything. And we, and we weren't doing that, and we weren't graduating them, and now we are. Uh, it turns out, though, and this is really important for people to understand, even among your listeners, the hottest thing we've got right now is a humanities major who has technological and scientific literacy. So if we have a philosophy major, English major, history major, gender studies major, and they're also tech savvy, they're the hottest thing that we've got because they understand what stuff means. <laughs> so, and so not that the engineers don't. It's just, it's just they're you know, maybe not as up to speed on 
on rationale. And so, and so from, from our perspective, what we found is that we needed to produce more people with double majors, more people with tech understanding, more people who understood coding but had studied English. Uh, and so this notion of simple block framing of just we're producing so many English majors and so many political science majors and so many double E majors. No, we're producing as many broadly educated, what we call master learners as possible. And then the other thing that we've done is we're taking all of our content and chopping it up into little bite-sized pieces. And we're saying, okay, well, maybe you have to take your degree online because you're already working or whatever. That's fine. We've got an opportunity for you to do that. But how about a micro bachelor's, which we're now offering, or a micro master's that we're now offering, or a set of courses or a range of certificates. How about blending in other courses or other ways of learning and bringing all that together? So that the, the approach that we're taking is taking learning opportunities to the learners uh, with what they need. And that's really the approach that we're taking. And NAU's, uh, no surprise, our top programs are our health sciences uh, where we have uh, nursing, physician's assistants, physical therapy, and a new uh, PhD in clinical psychology that we are, are launching uh, this, this year and it doubled the size of our expectations around uh, the mental health professionals that are needed in, in uh, Arizona. All these are, 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 are programs of huge growth. Uh, some are also at ASU and U of A. But our physician's assistance program is the only one in, uh, in Arizona at a public university. These are our commitments we've made to the state of Arizona to bring in a workforce for the uh, healthcare industry that's so needed. Our public health professionals are on the ground right now, and um, we're lucky to have uh, as many uh, of our students and faculty focused on the uh, the, the key issues of health disparities and health equity uh, in uh, this COVID-19 uh, era. The other big program is, is our Teachers Academy and the, uh, the work that we've done forever in um, preparing uh, teachers for the state of Arizona. And a new program is our cybersecurity program. The tech industry in Arizona is growing and uh, complementary to Michael's uh, engineering um, program that's growing and, and bigger than ever. Uh, we have uh, smaller programs that we are contributing as well to the needs of Arizona. So those would be the three, healthcare, uh, uh, teaching and education at the K-12, and then the work that we're doing in um, uh, the cyber area. Yeah, just to pick up on Michael's point about uh, the well-rounded individual, you know, our applied humanities programs, our, our dean is A.P. Durand, and he's very passionate about exactly what Michael was talking about. The, the principal investigator for our OSIRIS-REx program is Dante Loretta, and he was a Japanese major, right? And he's leading a, you know, a billion-dollar uh, NASA-funded project. So, um, Obviously, Rita is right in terms of healthcare. The number of individuals that are interested in careers in public health and medicine and nursing and pharmacy and all of these allied health fields is just a huge opportunity for us. Don't, don't forget about climate change. You know, if you, if you watch the big cloud of sand blow over from uh, the Sahara Desert that made its way up through the Gulf of Mexico, Climate change is not going away, and I love the way that Michael characterized this as a, as a shift in climate based on uh, uh, COVID. So our space programs, of course, are going to be continue to be important. Health, engineering, I couldn't agree more with Michael. All of us need to produce more engineers, and I, I think maybe ASU along with Texas A&M or probably the largest producers of uh, engineers of any university in the world at this point. And we're going to need those uh, engineers, um, especially as we, as we look at the interface between biology, uh, digital science, and health. Uh, that, that's going to be a, a right opportunity for entrepreneurs around our universities. We, we all three come together and have hired a director of the Phoenix Biomedical Campus. I, I think there are going to be great opportunities around this convergence of, of engineering, data, 
and biology, and there should be great opportunities in, in the state of Arizona for new discoveries, for creating new startup companies, partnering with existing companies, whether they be tech companies, engineering companies, medical device companies, the automobile industry. Uh, we've long uh, been, a, been a, uh, a great place for autonomous vehicles and the development of those technologies. So I, I see the future of Arizona as being bright, especially given all of the issues that we're going through in, in terms of the economy, tax bases, social justice issues. Arizona has an opportunity to be a real leader and a place for companies to want to come and make use of of all that we have to offer. Obviously, I'm biased, but most of the great uh, discoveries, the not the evolutionary, but the revolutionary things that have changed the world have typically come from uh, at least a a spark out of a university. And I think we've got three great opportunities in this state for uh, business to, to, to partner with our faculty and be able to co-invent new solutions that simply make the world a better place. By the way, as you uh, all have been growing the number of STEM graduates that you've been producing, I'm sure you've noticed the tech industry has been growing in leaps and bounds here as well. And We define technology in a very broad way. It includes health and bioscience, optics and photonics, energy, semiconductors, IT, the the gambit. Collaborating with industry is a key way to take the basic sciences that are being generated in academic institutions and bringing them to all of us, to society, so that we can all benefit from them. How important are your collaborations with the private sector here in Arizona? And can you give us some examples? I think President Robbins mentioned that, for instance, that Rita's working with TGen and Michael's working with Mayo and you're working with Banner on the health and bioscience arena. Can you talk about some of the other collaborations and how how important are they to you? You know, NAU's uh, close research uh, partnership with uh, TGen and TGen North really allows our undergraduate and our graduate students to serve as interns and gain invaluable experience. We've recently partnered um, as well with uh, the ecological biology department, I think it's the evolutionary biology department at U of A around a a COVID tracking. We have other uh, examples, mostly in the planetary uh, and astronomy, planetary science uh, with Lowell Observatory and the um, the various regional and national and international observatories. A lot of science around that. All three universities have various aspects of space uh, research going on. One of the real practical on the ground examples with industries here in Northern Arizona is a partnership around uh, forest restoration and biomass utilization. And that's a huge uh, effort to find an aftermarket uh, uh, for the waste coming out of the uh, forest uh, thinning, working with uh, all of the uh, units here. So we've got a lot of things going. And and, uh, President Robbins mentioned uh, the Phoenix Biomedical Campus. I think that that's only in its infancy, and we are going to see great things coming out of there. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to mention another great one, uh, and I was going to speak for Rita and Michael, but Gore is one of the great companies, uh, certainly in in the medical space, but they also do more than just uh, medical things. And obviously, they're in Flagstaff. They have a big presence in uh, Maricopa County. So I I think there are opportunities uh, to collaborate with companies that are already here. Certainly for us in Tucson, Raytheon is a big one. There's a huge need in the area of hypersonics in in terms of building new uh, tunnels to test projectiles that go five times the speed of sound and understand uh, what happens to those those objects. And so we we have a very close partnership with Raytheon and we think we're going to be competitive uh, nationally for getting some awards to to build out uh, research and development uh, units uh, around hypersonics. The other area, though, that I keep coming back to is medical devices, 
pharmaceuticals, in this whole area of digital health. I, I think with all of the partnerships we have collectively, and they sort of coalesce around the Phoenix Biomedical Campus, I think the state of Arizona in terms of health, space, and the environment, we, we've got a lot of great opportunity to focus in there and not only be competitive, but be leaders internationally, not just naturally, nationally. I think, uh, Steve, to your question, the only thing I would add is that, you know, we've taken, we've built a whole staff that does nothing but work on corporate relations. We've identified uh, dozens of strategic relationships, uh, hundreds of uh, critical relationships, and we, we have 13,000 entities recruiting from, uh, recruiting our students, 13,000 separate entities coming to campus, literally coming to campus to recruit here. Uh, as you know, we, we work now in a very different way than we did 10 years ago. Uh, we're involved in every retention and every recruitment project, uh, as well as our own retention and recruitments. And so, you know, we work to recruit Infosys and, a, and a, one of the regional tech centers here. We just got Zoom to agree to build a research and development center here in Arizona with 500 uh, employees. Uh, we uh, were obviously involved in the GM tech center. We're involved in the various advanced vehicle systems and battery system companies. Our team was in Taiwan helping to make the case to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company uh, relocating here. Our team's traveling all over the world. We have uh, multiple uh, places to engage, uh, multiple incubation spots also, as you know. So, So we've taken a soup to nuts kind of approach. We have uh, Grace O'Sullivan, who's a fantastic coordinator for us here at the university who's uh, helping to make things happen. So she's been doing a fantastic job. We have uh, Lisa Young, who's another person who's now working with corporations to help us to work to solve their learning problems and their learning challenges and their learning outcomes. We're we're modifying our curricula to work with uh, high-tech manufacturers and and, uh, building customized degrees, customized learning platforms uh, for places. And I think when you add that, with the quality of life here, with what life is like here, what the place is like, you know, we, I, I think, and I know Bobby and uh, Rita uh, agree, this, we have more potential in, in Arizona than anywhere else. But what we don't yet have is mindset. We don't yet have mindset. We, we still think that this is basically a real estate town. And these are all real estate transactions. These are not real estate transactions. These are, these are, these are knowledge enterprise transactions. And w- once we sort of get around to that, and once we understand that a little bit better, there's going to be so much going on here. This is going to make other places uh, very, very envious of the, of the fact that you can have high quality of life and high outcomes and you know, fantastic place to ride your mountain bike and to go hiking and to do this and to do that and go up to Flagstaff and go skiing and do all these other kinds of things and a place to put your business and your high-tech business and so uh, your knowledge enterprise business. And that then means for... Steve Chukri and others, you know, running the restaurant association, a lot more people go into restaurants. Right. And so it all sort of works together. Karen, I think we're at the end of our time, aren't we? We're getting really close. Uh, can we squeeze in one last question? Again, knowing that our, who our listeners are, and of course, uh, making sure that uh, Arizona Tech Council and Arizona Commerce Authority uh, are plugging in here. I'm curious about... Um, Given the example with Stanford University having played such a central role in the emergence and success of Silicon Valley, you both have you have all kind of alluded to this a little bit. But how is your university working to bring about more innovation-based economic development to the state? You know that that we we say the Silicon Desert. Well, we're small but mighty. But I I've got a couple of uh, examples. Uh, we've got a high-impact uh, sustainability project that we're extremely proud of. It's called Fusion. Uh, and it's led by uh, a professor uh, and director of the School of Informatics, Computing, and Cyber Systems here uh, in, at NAU. It shows uh, the sources of every U.S. Uh, community's food, oil, gas, natural gas, electricity, water. And so some of the supply chain issues that we've had during this pandemic can be explained by the software that the uh, Fusion system is putting out. And and, uh, we're interacting with uh, various uh, trade associations um, and counties and cities and looking at power grids and and climate gradients for that. 
So that's one thing. And the other is um, an example of a, a, a partnership with the Air Force uh, to develop uh, non-traditional solutions for cyber attacks and cyber warfare using new hardware technologies. That is also led by professors and directors in the School of Informatics and Computing and Cyber Systems. So that, that really tells you how we're, we're looking at using uh, our data sources, our informatics and computing expertise to bring uh, solutions to sustainability, to transportation, and to security. Thank you, Rita. Michael or Robert? Yeah, what I would add is that, you know, we have approaching 200 venture or investor-backed spin-out companies right now. Most of them were invested in by California resources. And so there's this thing in Arizona, this anti-California thing I don't get. I just don't get it at all. It's like, if we if we continue to want to play small ball, we should pretend that California doesn't exist. If we want to play small ball, we should sit and wonder why they have all the venture capital and we don't. It doesn't make any difference. You know, we, we need more venture capital coming from Arizona. What we need are better ideas being sold to the people with venture capital in California. We're no further away from Silicon Valley than Los Angeles or San Diego. We're the, you know, you can fly in in the morning, have the meeting and then fly back. I mean, that's what those guys look for. Fine. They want to sit up there and, 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 and hold on to all their money. That's fine. But there's great ideas here. What we need is we need to start seeing ourselves as a national player, drawing on national assets, drawing on national resources, drawing on national talent. We're too small ball, too small in our thinking right now. Yeah, I would just add, you know, Michael, I've talked a lot about this over the years, is that it really is a cultural mindset change. You, you don't have to be in Tech Square uh, in Boston or in Mission Bay in San Francisco to have a successful startup. Uh, you can do it right here in Arizona. You can do it at our universities. And sending that message early on to our students, this is a place. I mean, we've got, you know, our optical science college, there are Fortune 50 companies who are in here every, every week. They used to be before COVID-19. But still having Zooms and talking about technology and students that uh, can participate in this. You know, we've had about 100 uh, last year, I think it was about 100 license or options and about over 50 patents that were issued, filed for about three or 400 patents and about 11 startups with royalties of around $6 million a year. Already in 2020, we've got 16 startups that we spun out. So I, I know uh, Michael has been doing this for a long time uh, with Skysong and many other uh, incubator accelerators that he's doing, not only uh, in Arizona, but around the world, as he described. It's more of a, of a change in culture, as, as Michael and Rita both have pointed out. Uh, this is a place. I, I think it, having spent time in the Bay Area and Stanford and uh, spent time in Texas, We've got kind of the, the pioneering entrepreneurial spirit that both places have, except just a more desirable place to live and a degree of freedom that you don't have in those, uh, those other places. So I, I'm, I'm very bullish on the future of Arizona and our three great universities. And, and we're not only going to survive, as I said before, this pandemic, but we're going to thrive. Michael's got a prop there. I just want to make sure everybody remembers. If you want everything to work well in the next few weeks, you got to put one of these things on. Always. We will. We will always. We just have the, the terrific programs at the undergraduate and graduate level throughout all of our universities that once we have these uh, uh, high-tech companies and once we have those startups, we can supply the workforce. And I think that that's really important as well. We were sending too many students out of state after graduation and we want to keep them in state. So I want to leave each of you with a personal note. Michael, my uh, next Zoom after this uh, is with the leadership at Infosys. And so thank you for bringing them here. President Robbins, my daughter graduated from the Eller School in MIS and is doing very, very well. And Rita, my, uh, my wife, Fanny, works is the director of operations for TGen here in the Phoenix office. So I can't thank you all enough for doing this uh, today. We very much appreciate it. Um, we'll send this out far and wide and uh, very provocative discussion. And thank you very much for, for doing it.
Thank you for having us. Everybody. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank See you ya. all for Bye. being here. Karen's going to close us out. Yep. I want right. to pay homage to our two uh, sponsors here. You've been listening to AZ TechCast, brought to you by Phoenix Business Radio and AZ Tech Council. Today's AZ TechCast was brought to you also by Arizona Commerce Authority the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. So thank you again, Arizona Commerce Authority. If you're interested in being a podcast participant or sponsor for the council's AZ TechCast, please contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to lock in your opportunity to further position you as an tech expert, influencer, and innovator. Again, thank you all for being here. It's been a pleasure. Some media leans left. They're putting on their masks. I love it. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Well done, people. Keep those on so I can take a photo. And thanks for being here. Here's our closing music. (laughs) 